We are going to take a Sunday today and we're going to overview, we're going to review what we talked about a year ago today as we entered this journey through the biblical narrative. Um, first thing I want to say about that is um, that this is a mouthful. I could probably take two or three weeks to do what I'm going to do today. You know what that means. It means I'm going to talk even faster than I normally talk, which is pretty fast. It means I'm going to throw everything at you today, including the kitchen sink, okay? Because I'm going to just give you a lot of information to, to talk about what we're doing. So please buckle up and hang in there. And if you've enjoyed the stories we've been going through for the past year, we're not getting one today. I know they've been, they've been uh, helpful to many, and I've gotten a lot of good feedback, but that will start next Sunday and beyond. Today's an overview and a lot of information, so bear with me as we jump in. We use these terms like the Bible. We're going through the Bible, and, and I love it. I love the fancy terms of Bible and scriptures and gospel and all the things that we say. A lot of times there's church words that if you've been around, you've heard them, and you might you know, have them in your repertoire, but you don't really know what they mean or you don't really think about it, they just, they just feel heavy. They feel heavy, like we're discussing the gospel. And I think some pastors and some people like to talk in ways that sound deep, because it makes them feel intellectual. Or people like to hear things that sounds deep, because it makes them feel intellectual. So we say the gospel is most fully aware in us when we yada, yada, yada. And everyone's like, ooh, that's so fancy. But I like to take the words that we put churchy emphasis on and just simplify them. Look, I can nerd out with anybody and go deep, but I want to make it attainable. So we remind you all the time that gospel is just a fancy word that means good news. It's good news. Okay, we can, I can, we can, sound, we can sound intellectual and I can do that. I can play that game, but it's just good news. And Bible, the Bible, it just means the books. It's just the books. And that's important for us to understand because the Bible, we think of it as just one giant book floating around, the Bible. And then it's just ominous. People can just kind of use it spooky. And again, if it's vague and mysterious, people can use it and abuse it by uh, uh, making it, uh, it's better to control when it's kind of clouded in mystery. And, but it's a collection of books. And it's important we understand that or we get into some really weird doctrine. So it reminds me of a scene from the movie The Grinch, the one that Jim Carrey plays The Grinch. You know, that, that live version. Um, there's a scene where the mayor of Whoville is arguing with little Cindy Lou about whether the Grinch should be the holiday cheermeister or not. I'm just talking, some of you are talking your spiritual language here. Um, anyhow, uh, and so they're arguing about it. And in the middle of this conversation, um, he pulls out the book of Who. And everyone's like, oh. And he says, well, the book of Who says right here. And he quotes a passage from it. And everyone's like, ah. And since Cindy Lou says, well, the book of who also says, and she quotes another passage, and everyone's like, ooh. And then the mayor says, yeah, but it says somewhere else, and he mumbles around and flips some pages. It's in there somewhere. And I thought about how that is so much like how people use the Bible. Just big book, all, and it is, it is a great book, equally inspired, but not equally weighty, but we just treat it like this one big thing that you can just walk in and pick and choose a verse and toss out to do whatever you want it to do, to justify your life or to co condemn someone else's life, to defend your politics or put someone else's down, to, to be about your things, your theology. We can just play this game and it's just a big book. And, it, and many people, if you're leaning into faith, you're not even sure you believe yet, but you're leaning in. You're like, what do I do with all of this? There's so much and what is it all? And maybe if you've been a new believer, you're trying to figure it out or you've been in church a long time and it's just, you've not even read through it all the way yet because it gets stuck and it's just this Bible. The Bible means the books. It's a, it's a collection. Actually, it's not. It's two collections of books. 
two separate collections of books bound together. And in ancient times when they were written, they didn't have printing presses yet, so they wrote them on scrolls, on papyrus, and later on parchment, and they had to keep copying the copies so they wouldn't go bad, but each section or each scroll would be a book or a writing. They took all these different writings or books and put them together into a collection, and, and one collection and another, two collections together get bound into what we call the Bible. But our Bibles are in two major sections, and I want to explain them today again to you as a reminder. The first section is the Old Covenant, and the second one is the New Covenant writings, or the Old Testament, New Testament. And these are not my terms. I didn't make these up. Just a little reminder. Um, I've said this before. But uh, about 150 years after Jesus walked this earth, about 150 to 200 years after Jesus, people who were following Jesus tried to decide what of the ancient Hebrew writings and story should be contained in a, a section that matters to us as Christians. And there was you know, people who were in the religion of Judaism who, who had the same question. And so people debated making an official record. We'll, we'll discuss that later. And they called these, this collection of writings, they called it the Old Covenant writings. The Old Covenant. And they called the Christian writings that came out about the Jesus' life and the early church, the New Covenant writings. And that was what happened for a while. A couple hundred years after that, a few hundred years after Jesus, the Roman Empire, who had been persecuting the church up until that point, changed their tune. One of their emperors claimed to be Christian now, and they embraced Christianity and made it the official religion of the empire, which brought some good and some bad through the centuries because of that. That's another story. But anyhow, um, they kind of moved everything from Greek and Hebrew into Latin. And, and, and then the words that we've translated into English now from Latin feel different than the ones that uh, came from Greek or Hebrew. So the word covenant coming out of Latin translates for us as testament. But it's the same word. Covenant, testament, same word. And that's what they first called it, the Old Covenant writings or the Old Testament, you could say, or the New Covenant or the New Testament writings. And um, th that was debated a long time ago. And another term, I prefer, I prefer to use these terms today, and that is the term the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures. And again, just ominous terms, ominous words. Scripture feels so heavy. Scripture just means writings. That's what it means. So if you see the word Scripture, what does that mean? It means writings. There's the Hebrew writings, and there's the Christian writings, or the Old Covenant and New Covenant writings, Old Testament and New Testament. Now, one reason why I like calling it the Hebrew Scriptures is because that's what the people who are Jewish, who are in Judaism still, there's a lot of Jewish people who, that's their religion. They don't accept Christ or Christianity as their message. And to them, it's insulting, by the way, that we call their books old. <laughs> they say they old anything. These are the Scriptures. Okay, your Christian writings are something different. Ours are the Scriptures. And we're like, no, no, yours are the Old Covenant, and we're the New Covenant. We're like, what in the world? And that's what we do. And the reason we say that is because as Christians, we know that Jesus came to make all things new in a new covenant. In fact, Jesus came along to a world that could not keep the Old Covenant. Let me make this clear. The Hebrew writings, or the, the Old Covenant writings, are the story of a nation. They're the story of a nation. They're the story of God's covenant with the nation, and he made several covenants, but the main one they're referring to is the one he made with the nation of Israel when Moses led them out of slavery, and there was the Abrahamic covenant before then and the Davidic covenant, but basically these covenants and this national covenant, the story of this nation and their rise and their, their succession and then their fall and their dismantling and their return is the story of the Hebrew writings. 
And then the Christian writings is a story of Jesus and God's new covenant with all the world, not just with a nation. And what we call the Old Testament now, we call it because Jesus made all things new. So when Jesus came, he did something that no one else could do. He actually fulfilled the old covenant. He lived by it. Another word for covenant is contract. He fulfilled the old contract. He did it. And he said, um, I didn't come to destroy it. I came to complete it like no one else has done and live by it to its umpteenth perfected degree. And then he could go in our place as a substitute for our failures as sinful people and, and, and die for our sins. And, and, and his sacrifice was, was, uh, was shown on Calvary as God's plan to take the wrongs and sins that were committed and, and, and have them provided for to bring us back into relationship with God. But anyhow, Jesus did all that. He fulfilled it. And then he said on the cross, it's finished. It is finished. And so in the last night that Jesus was alive, well, he's alive, but I mean before he was crucified, he was in an upper room with his disciples sharing one last meal. And they're sharing this meal, and the next day he would be crucified. He would be arrested that very night. And as they ate, he explained all the things that he was making brand new. He talked about things such as... Um, you know, it's going to be a new authority structure, new leadership uh, principles for, for, for my, you know, for my uh, followers. It's going to be a new commission he's going to give them shortly thereafter. A new command. He gave new commands that all the New Testament writings are built upon. The one and others came from there. And then he said, I'm going to give you a new covenant. And he's doing it during Passover. Now, I want to just mention this to you, and maybe this does not interest all of you. But while they're gathering for that last meal, they were celebrating Passover. And Passover for the Jewish people was a big deal. Because Passover was their national day as Jewish people, a national day of independence. It was the day that, at that point when Jesus was there, it was 1,500 years after they came out of slavery in Egypt and they had celebrated some, some festivals throughout the year. The most important one was Passover. It was to them what July 4th is to us as Americans, you know, July 4th, 1776. Um, you know, for us, it's kind of weird, actually. That's the day we declared independence, but then had to fight, otherwise die. For, but anyhow, th that's the day we look to as our celebration in America. Well, for the Jewish people, it was the Passover season celebrating their freedom from slavery and coming to their promised land. And Jesus is celebrating this national festivity with other Jewish men. And he says to them, I'm making all things new, and it's not just for you, it's not just for this nation, it's for the whole world. And it's what God has promised all along, and it's about to happen, but here's the deal. It's all new. Leadership, authority structures, uh, commissions, new commandments, and in the middle of it all, he takes the food they're eating. And in verse 20 of Luke chapter 22, Jesus, after supper, took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. And he says in that moment, it's a new covenant between God and his people, not his people, the Israelites, that's the old covenant had been. The new covenant was for God and all people, of all nations, everywhere, for all who would believe and follow him. And he says to them, this is the new covenant. I want you to remember me when you take this from now. This is, this is like taking a, a very na big national holiday and saying, we're going to take this for the whole world and make it about something different. It's an agreement confirmed with my blood. Not the old systems of old religions, including Judaism, where they killed animals as sacrifices for atonement, which I know a lot of people find hard to swallow, and it's difficult. Like, why would anyone? And I get that is, that is difficult, but 
But Jesus did away with it all anyhow. He's like, look, that's, you missed the point. God, has, this, this is how it looks. The only sacrifice for the consequence of sin that needs to be spilled out is mine. That God himself will bear the consequence for your sin so that no one else has to. All that stuff is behind us. All that covenant's behind us. And no one kept it anyhow. New covenant in my blood for all people going forward. This is what it's about. And then he went and died on the cross and said it is finished. Sometime later, within two decades, someone wrote a set of books, a book in the Christian writings that we call the book of Hebrews, which is well named because it definitely speaks to a Hebrew audience about, as Jewish people, God's whole new thing. If you're a believer, but that's your culture, God made everything new now and is a new everything. All things have passed away. You should read it. It's very interesting. But I'll read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 8 talking about this very topic. It says, But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. A far better covenant because the old covenant was, it was, it was so limited. It was a covenant with a nation. Basically, if you'll do the right thing, I'll bless your nation. And if you don't do the right thing, it's going to go bad for you. And here's the problem. You can live in that nation and do the right thing. But if your nation as a whole is not doing the right thing, well, you're just part of the national trouble. I mean, you just, you know, it was, and it didn't work in the nation. It, it was an old covenant. But Jesus mediated a far better covenant with God for all people, for you as an individual with your personal relationship with God. And it's based upon better promises. Promises that God says, look, when uh, your, your righteousness is not based upon your own performance, it's upon my sacrifice. That I've made things right between you and God through Calvary. That Jesus is saying, look, from now on, you believe in me and that's, that's your, that you're in. You follow me and my spirit will live inside of you and, and, and we'll do greater works. But, but even in the, in the times that you fall, there's grace and mercy and forgiveness because of the cross. And it's a better covenant for all of us with better promises. And, and the, the priests, they're talking about this. And we can spend a whole week or two in this one chapter. We don't have time today. But I want to read one more verse and we'll move into today's conversation more. Later on in verse 13, several, uh, verse 7, I'm sorry, let's go back to verse 7. It says, um, if the covenant had been faultless, there had been no need for a second covenant to replace it. If that first covenant would have worked, it would have been fine, but it wasn't. It was not adequate. There would have been no need for a second covenant now to replace it, but there is. Jump into verse 13. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means that he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. And by the way, it has largely. If you go to the world today, even people who are Jewish by birth, who that's their, that's their history, that's their nation, that's their, they don't reject, they reject Jesus, they practice Judaism as a religion. The, the ones who practice it don't really follow the old covenant fully. They follow parts of it, historical festivals, but m- much of the stuff, animal sacrifices, many other things, they're just done even those who embrace Judaism as a religion and reject the Messiah. They just have parts of it still. It, it, it being obsolete when the covenant fell apart and the nation was in captivity anyhow. For Christian people, it's even further removed from us. Although I know, Christ, I know Christians in my life uh, from different 
factions of Christianity, I guess you could say, who like to pretend or practice Judaism like they're, like they're Jewish. I'm a Jewish. And I'm like, well, are you Jewish? Or are you just like saying you want to be about the Jewish stuff? Because, I mean, you know, I can say I'm Native, Native, Native American, but I'm not. I can say a lot of things. But, you know, are you just identifying with a culture that you're not, a, that you're not birthed into? That's fine. But even Christians who do that, like Seventh-day Adventists and certain fundamentalists and different denominations, they never practice the Old Covenant fully. They just pick and choose because no one does and no one can. Because it's, it's obsolete. It's, it's out of date. It's disappeared. We just have these records. So people step into the space still a little bit, I guess. But, but Jesus gave us a far better covenant. As he said on that day he was crucified, or the night before, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so it's okay. I, and the culture is interesting. I know that you might be sitting here saying, well, Arlen, if that's the case, then why are we taking last year and this year to go Sunday by Sunday through the, the Hebrew writings, through the Old Covenant stories, and telling these stories? And if, if they're not my historical background and they're not my culture, and it's an Old Covenant, anyhow, that God's moved past, it's a story of a nation that is, that's not my nation, and it's a covenant that didn't last, and God's made all things new. Why do we tell the stories? Why do we care about them? And that's a good question, and we'll explain why in a, in a uh, first of all, we care not because they're necessary for salvation, because they're not. We're saved through the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, and that's, that's it. Our faith in Christ alone. But this other, this older, uh, these, this Old Testament holds value to us still for several reasons. For several reasons. First of all, it's like a, a prequel to a great story. So I, I thought about trying to think of a, a movie that could help us illustrate the power of a movie and then a prequel. And I thought to use Star Wars. Now, I was going to use a couple other movies or series that have great stories and great prequels, but I don't want someone to be like, oh, can't believe a church and a pastor mentioned that show I don't like, and I don't want to offend the easily offendable. Not that you are, but someone could be. Who knows? So Star Wars feels safe-ish. Um, or I'll get a letter later. I don't know. But anyhow, um, so Star Wars, uh, when I was a kid, episodes four, five, and six came out, which was brilliant, I thought, right? Because they came out with like, assuming those previous episodes that they're not even mentioning, we're starting with episode four, which kind of said there's a backstory that got us here, obviously, but we're not telling it. Just join us with this new hope. And then the Emperor strikes back, and then the return of the Jedi. And some of you are listening for the first time all morning. You're like, oh yeah, Star Wars, I get that. So anyhow, um, this, this movie, they were great. I loved them. But about 10, 20 years later, so I forget how long, someone decided to come out. And Nathan, you'll know exactly how many years, won't you? How many years later the prequels came out? I put you in the spot, didn't I? He's thinking, you're thinking, I can tell you, you're doing some math in your head. Um, later on, the prequels came out. And they told the episodes one, two, and three. And to be honest, people from my age who knew the original ones, I didn't like the prequels as much. They just weren't the same. But if you came of age in the era of the prequels, they were awesome. Because it's like, you know, and the other ones were just outdated, you know. But anyhow, so the prequels, if I didn't love them, what I loved about them, the best thing about them was they told the backstory to the characters that I cared about and came to love. They told us how Anakin Skywalker eventually became Darth Vader. I'm sorry for the spoiler alert for somebody. I just ruined it all for you. But um, they told the backstory of how, uh, you know, What's his name? Obi-Wan Kenobi became who, who he was in episode four. And Leia and Luke were born. And how Palpatine became this evil emperor and how he came into power. 
And they even told them other things that were left behind, thankfully, things that are not important, like Jar Jar Binks and things that should be forgotten forever. Terrible stories. But anyhow, they moved us into some, some bridges into the story that we cared about as a prequel. And even the movie, the greatest Star Wars movie out there, possibly Rogue One. Rogue One is the story of how they got the, the Death Star plans to destroy the Death Star in Episode Four, And it's an ill-fated mission. Everyone's going to die, but it's heroic. And the, the reason we like those prequels is they tell us how we got to the, to the main event. And I know that maybe for some of you, you're like, Arlen, I'm not Jewish. I don't, have a, I don't celebrate what is now 3,500 years ago being freed from slavery as a nation of people because I'm not... That's not my, I'm not a, a, a Hebrew person. I don't celebrate that era. It's not my festivals, not my, not my story, not my covenant. I'm a Christian. If you're a Christian today, unless you're Jewish, Christianity is your story. Your connection to all the other stuff is only because of Jesus. But that prequel or that backstory may interest you because you care about the main story and it brought us to the main story. So this prequel we read about tells us several interesting things. It tells us how that God said, I'm going to bring my son, the Messiah, into the world. And I'm going to do it through, he's going to be born into a family, into a nation. What nation? I'll start a nation. I'll begin one. Out of what? I'll start with a man. I'll start with Abraham. And makes a covenant with him and, and promises him a great, we, we studied Abraham last year for several weeks, didn't we? And then eventually the nation grows and then they're enslaved in Egypt and Moses leads them out and makes a covenant with the nation and, and gets the world's attention all around them as he does powerful, wonderful things. And as he begins to give promises and prophecies of a savior to be born. And then he kept and fulfilled those prophecies Prophecies and those promises came true as Jesus was born and, and so many wonderful things happened. And that was the main event and we care about that, but we care about the story that brings us to Jesus, even if it's not our story historically. Because it's the backstory that interests us and not only does it lead us to Jesus and point us to Jesus, but it serves as the useful tool of all good history. So I used to teach U.S. history for a number of years in high school, and I loved doing it. I've always said that history is one of those things that if you don't learn from it, you're doomed to repeat it. We can look at the world today and see where people are not, um, where people, things that are being done look like patterns from before that lead down dark paths or good paths. So history does for us. And, 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 and 2,000 years ago, when Jesus walked this earth, the Apostle Paul, by the way, if you don't know who Paul was, Paul used to be called Saul. Paul followed the story of Jesus. He was alive when Jesus was alive, but he was not a believer. He was an old covenant, devout Jewish Hebrew man who hated the new message of Jesus, hated Christianity, and Paul fought it. He persecuted people. He put people to death or in prison who believed it and defended those old ideas of, of his religion and rejected the gospel. Until one day he met Jesus and everything changed for him. He began to go spread that message everywhere. He began to go to different countries and places and spread the news to all nations and all peoples. And his old group that he ran with before hated him for it because of his messaging changing and leaving their old covenant uh, belief about what the gospel, about, about who God was and what it looked like. And, and, and for reaching those foreigners, they didn't like that either. And he just went on his own and, and, and preached the goodness of Jesus everywhere. And eventually was 
persecuted and chased into a, a, a situation where he was put to death eventually because of the opposition to that message. But as Paul wrote letters to these places that he preached the gospel where churches were started, one of those towns was the city of Corinth. And Corinth was one of many places that the gospel spread and people began to form a body of believers, a local ecclesia, a gathering, a church. And Paul would write a letter. In fact, in fact as far as we know today, Paul wrote three letters to the churches, the church of Corinth. First, second, and, and third letters to Corinth. Two of those three letters are in our scripture canon today. The other one's still out there. But he, he wrote several. And as Paul wrote these letters... He um, explained to this crowd, who, by the way, was largely not Jewish. There were probably some Jewish believers who lived in those cities through the captivity years and back who, who came to faith in Christ, but many of them were other nations, and they came to faith in Christ. And, and, and he talks about the, the things that they would hear in the synagogues that were in every city, about the, the, the Jewish uh, story and the Hebrew covenant. He would refer back to them, to the people of Corinth, and say, here's some stories from back in Moses' day that we still have record of. And as he, as he talked about these things, here's what he said to this largely Gentile audience. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, he says, these things happened to them, to the people in that era, these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. And when it says end of the age, that just means at the most recent times so far. Obviously, at any point you're alive, you're at the most current top point of history so far. Everything else is before you. And then as time goes on, there's a, new end of the, you know, there's a new end of time as we know it so far. And Paul says, for those of us who are alive today, these older things that were written down and preserved are, are examples. They serve as examples to guide us and to teach us, to help us like all history should be, and the scriptures are. So they matter to us for that reason and because they point us to Jesus coming as Christians, and that's our story. That's our new covenant, better promises story, and that's the backstory. So we're going to look at them this year. We're going to continue our journey. We left off with the death of David. We're going to pick up there and move into some more adventures. And if you think it's been interesting so far, buckle up because... <laughs> if, if, if it's been salacious or interesting along the way in the Bible so far, wait till what comes in the next few months. It's going to be interesting. But before we get there, I wanted to remind you of what we have that we call the Bible, the books in these two sections. And I wanted to tell you how, what we find in the Hebrew Scriptures. So the Hebrew Scriptures, as you have them, are laid out in sections. And that's just our design. Actually, Jewish people who are not Christians have them laid out differently. They have different books and different number of them and different layout. But a lot of the same stuff. But, uh, but we, have laid our, we laid us out in our, what we call our Old Testaments are laid out a certain way in certain sections. And it's not chronological. There, someone makes chronological Bibles, but that's not very common. Has anybody ever had or owned or used a chronological Bible? Anybody here today? Nobody? Okay, two in the last service did. So I, I've read it through chronologically several times, but it's not laid out chronologically. So in the Hebrew writings that we have, or our Old Testament, there's sections. And before I show you what's in those sections and we move on, I want to just say this to you. It's a, mar it's a, it's a marvel that we have literature from 3,500 years back 
This is a tribute to God's preservation and, and humanly speaking to Moses. When Moses led the children of Israel out of slavery, he said to them, guys, we're, gonna, we're starting a new nation. You need laws because you never had laws before. You were just slaves. We're going to put laws and, and government in place. And he built a system of government from the very beginning in Israel that included a form of taxation or tithe that was taken to fund their theocratic-style government, including people who served as what they called scribes, whose only job was to write down the things they wanted to document and to keep making new copies of the things that were documented from before. Because the problem with things is that they would get old. In the old days, they wrote on papyrus scrolls. They would go bad after a while. They would fade. They would fall apart. They would get destroyed. So they have to make copies of copies. And from the very beginning of Israel, Moses said, we're going to put people in place to write things down and to make copies of other things before they get bad and make more copies and other books will check their work and we're going to preserve our history. And it was brilliant because not only did he do that, but Israel after him did that through their king years, through their captivity years, all the way through to this day. And because they did that, we have the best record of ancient times anywhere. You, you can find archaeologists and students of history who look back on, on time periods from 3,500 years ago, and they'll find archaeological digs, and they'll find drawings or small writings that were preserved, and they'll make a big deal about them and read between the lines. But we have all of this beautiful history of the Hebrew story preserved because Moses set a precedent that everyone followed, and God preserved the story for us today. And that's why you have it in the year 2024 in a bind, bound book thanks to the printing press or on your phone thanks to technology. It's a miracle. So as you read the Old Testament or the Old Covenant writings, here's what you'll find in sections. These are not chronological, but there's basically five major sections in our Old Testament or our Hebrew scriptures. The first one is, the, is called the law. The law. And that is also called the books of Moses or the, the law of Moses or it's called the Pentateuch. It's called a lot of things. The law, and it includes uh, Genesis, which is the backstory before Moses and the people he was with were alive. It was their backstory of their ancestors like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the ancient world. Exodus was their story coming out of slavery and their adventures. It was their laws. Leviticus was more laws. Numbers was genealogies and more adventures and stories. Deuteronomy was the end of Moses' life, writing to the next generation as they entered the promised land without him about where they've been and where they're going. It's the books of the law, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. We went through those together. The next section is called the, the books of history or the historical books. And this is where we're spending most of our time in this series because we're basically going through the narratives. And so we're, we're going to the other spots, but mostly we're spending our time in the history. This includes Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And these books cover from the time that the Israelites entered the promised land under Joshua, through their years of judges or deliverers, through their king years, through their divided, broken kingdom, through their captivity of both halves, through the return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple, later on. The whole gambit is covered in these historical books. And they're historically laid out within themselves, although writings after them in the setup we have came before them. We're kind of working, we're in 1 Kings right now as a church. We're working our way through. Now, 
after the historical books come the books of poetry and wisdom. And those books include Job. By the way, Job is actually one of the oldest books. It's very ancient. We actually, if we're going chronologically, we kind of skipped it. We're going to do it real soon here. Love Job. Psalms, we already discussed the book of Psalms. Proverbs, we're getting there soon, in a couple weeks here. Ecclesiastes, that's fascinating. Song of Solomon, I'm going to skip that one just for the record. I'm letting, uh, um, I told Anthony Curtis or Debbie Douglas, they can preach that one when I'm gone sometime. I'm not going to touch Song of Solomon with a 10-foot pole. But anyhow, uh, these are, um, but we're going to come with it. We're, well, I'll mention it briefly in passing. But we, these are the books of poetry and wisdom. And then after that come the books of the prophets. Um, that, that is, um, the, the major prophets are first, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the Lamentations of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. There are major prophets with lots of writings and big, big figures. Then there's the minor prophets, lesser-known people with shorter writings, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And, and we're going to breeze over them in like one week because it's just, that'll be torture otherwise for 12 weeks. So we're just going to breeze over them at the end of our series. Or maybe two weeks, I don't know. But anyhow, these are the books that are contained in our, what we call the Old Covenant or Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures as laid out in our front half of our collection of the Bible. These two collections of writings bound together in our Bibles today. Different than the layout that the people, the Jewish people who aren't Christian, who have their, these sacred writings laid out differently but here's why, and this is important. This is my extra layer today. i got to hurry and move on because it's getting late. Um, this is why it's important to understand. Uh, there were more writings. You under, hopefully understand. There's more writings than the 39 that are in the Old Testament. There's lots of ancient writings. And they've been long debated about what belongs in what they call the canon. Canon, C-A-N-O-N. What is canon? Canon means a collection or list of sacred books accepted as genuine. And this was a long debate. And, and contrary to some people's understanding, there was never a time where someone sat around and picked which books go in and which books go out. I think uh, Dan Brown's book, um, what was that book he wrote? Um, famous uh, movie and book. Anyhow. He, they pretend that there was a council that decided this canon at one time, which is just not true. It was, it's always been debated. Early after Jesus died and rose again, Christians who were not Jewish but were Jesus followers said, what do we take from all these writings, all these scrolls and writings, and call them the official canon, quote-unquote, the official ones that count? Because, you look, if you're going to put them all together in, like a, in a book form eventually— It'd be endless unless you had it. You gotta make a cutoff somewhere. You gotta say this one's in, that one's out. And some are obviously in, some are obviously out, but some are kind of on the bubble. You gotta make a decision, and it's always hard. So they debated what's in the canon for, for a couple hundred years. And Christians who were not Jewish but were Jesus followers made those conversations happen. And then Jews who were not Jesus followers had the same discussion and came to different conclusions, by the way. And, and, the, and the Christians who were Jesus followers. Uh, called them the Old Covenant writings. But even for those few hundred years of the early church after Jesus, there was some shuffling. There was like, this one's in, and then a couple, 50 years later, oh, that one's out now. This other one's in. These two are in. 50 years later, these three are out. It was back and forth for a while. Even as early as the Reformation, as recently as the Reformation with Martin Luther and those people, it was debated about kind of what was in the canon and what was not, because there's always those ones that are on the bubble. 
In fact, interestingly, some of you who grew up in a strict fundamentalist background, perhaps, who were King James only in their Bible usage, like I came from a background not where people use the King James as a preference, which is fine, like I like it, but people who believed it was the only right translation and the rest were perversions, you know. People who had that radical view of a, an ancient English translation, and I know that very well, um, they uphold the 1611 King James translation. The funny part is that King James translation in 1611 included about a dozen extra books that are not in our Bibles today. They put them in there and they called them the apocryphal section because they didn't know what to call them. They included them. And then about 100 plus years later, they yanked them back out and that's apparently one acceptable change to that crowd was to take those out. But uh, there, there's always these extra books that were not in the 39 that we call the Old Testament today. And some of them, but here's the thing, and I'm going to show them to you. Before I do, here's the crazy part. The people who have debated which ones come and go, and, and we'll, we'll point those out, all those people always said, and this is not my words, it's their words, they would say, these other things that we're going to kind of keep out of the official list are good, and they ought to be read by, the, by believers. They ought, and they're still around today, but they, they ought to be read. But we just have to make the list somewhere. We gotta make a, so we're just going to mention them. And so most of us have never read them, but they're out there. I'm going to give you several titles that you could look up if you wanted to read some of these, these writings. Here are a few of them. First and Second Esdras, uh, the book of Tobit, inter weird, interesting. The book of Judith, fascinating story there. That'll keep you on your toes. The rest of Esther, book of wisdom, Sirach, Barak, the letter of Jeremiah. The prayer of Azariah is also called the song of the three children. Uh, the Susanna and the elders, Bell and the dragon. First Maccabees, second Maccabees, prayer of Manasseh and Psalms 151. Those are some of the most debated ones that have been in and out of the canon. In fact, Esther, which is now in our Old Testament, was at one time, several times, said it should be out. Then it went back in, then out, then in. And then part of Esther's in and part is out. The rest of Esther's out. Same with Daniel. There's more to Daniel's era than is included now, but it's been in and out. Three of those stories are from Daniel's time. It's, there's a whole conversation here, and these writings exist today. Then there are other even more fringe ones, like don't even get that close to the official list, like the Book of Enoch, which although we consider it outside of the canon, the Christian, gospel, the Christian writing of Jude in the New Testament quotes from the book of Enoch. So it's kind of interesting that you can find even that writing referenced in our Bibles today. But anyhow, all of these um, things are, are out there. And I'd encourage you to, to check them out. I've read myself through them and I, I find them interesting because the people who made the decisions about what to put in and what not to put, found them interesting. And I wanted to mention them to you because we're going to point some of the things in some of them as we move through the rest of our historical journey through the Old Testament. But there's a lot there. And they call these terms, terms like proto-canonical and deuterocanonical, what's, what's what. It's really nerdy and some of you could care. Some of you are like, I could care less about any of this stuff, Arlen. Like, Culver's is already open, please end, so I can eat. And I understand. So let me give you a couple closing thoughts today. With all this information I just threw at you, and I know this is not the Adventure Sunday. I know this is not the narrative. But don't worry, we begin again next week. So just come back and buckle up. But here's the thing. Today I think is necessary for us to remember what we have. And God has preserved for us in these Old Covenant, New Covenant writings, the Hebrew writings, the Christian writings. And so here's what I want you to do in 2024. We're entering a new year. Practically speaking, what do I want you to do? What am I asking you? What am I challenging you to do this year, if you choose to, with all this information? Three things. Three things today. 
First one is this, gather. Gather. What do I mean by gather? Well, at church here, we have a, a kind of a strategy, you know, we have our mission statement and vision statement. We have a, a kind of a strategy as how we look at the church of what we're trying to do. And it, it's a five-prong uh, uh, growth structure. Gather, connect, serve, invite, give. Gather, connect, serve, invite, give. And gather, what we mean by gather is show up on Sundays where we sit around and we, and we sing songs and worship Jesus and we fellowship with one another and we, and we care for each other. And this morning in the early service, we prayed at the front of the, of the room at the end of the service over a young man who's going to, as in the Navy, he's being shipped overseas to a dangerous part of the world right now. And we gathered with his family, we prayed over him and we gather and we, we sing and we worship and we, and we spend time together. And then we... Um, we uh, open the scriptures and we learn together. If you will gather with us on Sunday mornings for 2024, we're going to continue journeying through the books, journeying through the Hebrew writings. And it's going to get interesting throughout the way, and you'll learn a lot, and we'll hopefully apply a lot of good truths to our lives from these examples given for us. So gather on Sunday mornings and learn what's in the Bible. Number two, my second piece of advice to you today is this read the Bible. Read the Bible. Read the books. Read all of it. The Old Covenant, New Covenant, read all of it. Now, I know that some of you said, Arlen, I've tried before. I've tried before. You know, January is always a power month, and then I get past Genesis, and I'm like, why? You know, I understand. Here's my answer. Whether you've been around for decades or whether you're new to this whole thing, I think everyone ought to read it, all of it at least once. Even the, the Jewish story that you might not feel applies to you as a Christian today, you need to read it once at least. If you go into a church like, like this, you're gonna continue hearing it anyhow taught from. So, so coming to church is one way to gather and learn from that was one way, but read it for yourself at least once. Now, here's the truth is that some of us read it more. I read it through from cover to cover every year since I was a teenager with a very few exceptions where I did something different. I just read it from cover to cover. I'm reading it through chronologically again this year. Plus I do my Bible study as a pastor on, professionally on top of that. But I read it through as a, as a Christian every year for the most part. And you don't have to do what I do. I, that's the, some of us do that. You could do that. It doesn't take long. It's like 12 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day tops to read through the Bible in a year. But you should read through it all, including the Hebrew writings, including the Old Covenant writings, at least once. And then for those of you who would be like, that's right, Arlen, yeah, I read the Bible. Tell the others to do it too. Before you feel all haughty and better, because you read all of it, including the Old Covenant writings, let me poke you a little bit. Maybe you should try reading those other writings I mentioned. Because the people who made these decisions a long time ago said those other ones were still important and they, they, at different times you could have been alive, they could have been in the canon. They're out there. Read some of the other ones I mentioned. Come see me, I'll tell you how to find them if you can't. They're very easy. But read the other stuff. Just, just at least once in your life, explore all that God has given us and has preserved through the centuries and the millennia. So gather on Sundays and learn. And then read the Bible for yourself. And then number three, apply it. That's the whole point. Application is everything. Application makes, is what makes the difference. It doesn't do any good for us to read and learn if we don't apply. In fact, I want to show you one more scripture. Make this point and we'll be done. The last scripture is from Paul who is writing to a young protege. Remember Paul, the old covenant Jewish person who persecuted the message of Jesus so hard? until he became a Jesus follower and changed everything for him. Paul wrote a letter to a young protege named Timothy about how to lead the church in Ephesus where he placed him to lead the church. And he talks about his relationship to the writings or the scripture. 
In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. And that's so powerful, I want to read it again to you so you don't overlook it. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. And then the next verse is so good, verse 17. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And that's the point. Yes, read it. Yes, come and gather and learn it, hear about it and learn from it. Yes, read it. But the point is to do it. Come on. It's to do it. It's the application. Because here's the thing. I've, look, can I tell you, I know some people in my lifetime of being in church and as a pastor's kid and as a preacher myself now and 25 years as pastor of this church in both of our locations we've been at. I'll tell you what I've learned. There's a lot of people who brag about how much Bible they've read, but they don't live like Christians. I know people who like to ask people, I've read the Bible this year, have you? I've read it through this many times, have you? And they, they, like it's, a, it's a badge of honor that makes them better than others, right? Because they read the Bible, but they don't live like Christians. And I don't think that's normal. It shouldn't be normal. The Bible should bring transformation to our lives. But it, it has not always done that for some people. So here's the point. If you read it, and you come to church and hear about it and learn about it, but you don't do what it teaches, it's a waste. It's a waste of time. Might as well stay at home. Might as well not, not pick it up. Because the point is not just to read it and to know it. Actually, we're more accountable if we know what we're supposed to do and don't do it. That's like looking in the mirror and seeing a mess of, of your face and just saying, I should fix that, and then walking away and doing nothing. It's worse. At least you knew and you did nothing. So, so the point is not, don't just read it and learn it, but do it. Because here's the thing, and, and on the screen here, the point, the point of the reading and the learning is the doing. The point of the reading and the learning is the doing. Now, you can't do it if you don't know it, so you gotta read it and you gotta learn it. But if you read it and learn it and don't do it, you fell short of the point. And we at Lighthouse Church encourage you to be people who are living it out and doing things in our community and for each other to, to, to do the things the Bible teaches. I'll take, I'll take somebody who barely knows the Bible but lives by what they know is true from God over someone who can memorize it and is proud and arrogant about it and debates it, how it should be presented and how it should not be presented, but doesn't actually live by it. Because the point of the learning and the point of the reading is the doing. And if we do it, we're like wise people who build our house upon a rock. And we will survive the storms of life. So, wherever you are today, welcome to 2024. The adventure continues next week when we get back to our stories. But for today, I hope that you will take what God has given us today and preserve for us. And treasure it. And read it. And come together on Sundays and learn from it. And apply it to your lives. This year, and it could be a great year in your faith journey.